Welcome to another podcast from the Leadership Department. I'm your co-host, Paul Jostineau, and with me is Dan Connolly, course director for the Leader Development course. Last time, we talked about leadership as a concept uh, within military organizations and within the course that we're launching this year. So today, let's tackle a related subject, ethics. We brought up ENDS in the last podcast, and uh, you've already heard about ethics. It's the first phase of our course this year, and we linked it to the core values within the Air Force, and especially to an investigation of integrity, uh, although it relates also very closely to service before self uh, and excellence in all we do. So let's dig into that today. To start off, what does the word ethics mean to most people today, specifically in U.S. military circles. Yeah, Paul, similar to an observation that came up in the last pod, we're always affected by our outer environment. And so I think what uh, a lot of people understand ethics to mean, and we see this in in the military as in uh, many other professions as well, is organizational ethics, what the organization determines to be ethical. And so consequently, uh, it's incumbent on the member, uh, the professional, to align his or her personal ethics with the organization. We understand that it's kind of written into the code of being a professional. And yet I think in a way this is a very limited way of thinking about ethics. Okay, so if you were offering a definition of ethics, what would you say? Yeah. So really to say that, you have to begin with a definition of morality. And so that's going to bring us into an interesting discussion point. Think on person versus group or person and organization. Uh, Morality, I think properly expressed, is about helping or harming other humans. And I think when we think about it that way, I know I'm a pet lover too. For the purposes of the course in this discussion, we're going to focus on other people. The idea here is that ethics is just a systematized or an organized way to think about morality. So that when you're coming up with an approach to how to help on how not to harm other humans according to a set of rules, you're practicing ethics. And then when you compare competing ideas, you're actually studying. In fact, you're creating or you're adding to the body of ethical literature. Whether you're doing that in personal conversation, whether you're doing it in writing, that's how the story goes. And so it's a huge conversation. It's been going on thousands of years Uh, And this course hopes to continue in that same uh, tradition. Okay, so that's interesting because one of the things that I've observed frequently in this environment and elsewhere is a tendency for uh, people to relate ethics to an organizational code of conduct, but then treat morality as an individual conviction. So these are actually two separate spheres rather than related ones. Yeah, it's an interesting division, and I think a lot of people would argue an artificial one. That's why it's so good to get into that space in the conversation, and let's examine that for just a minute. I think if you take a quick dip back into the history of thought, you're going to find that some of the causal effort behind that sense that organizations are in charge of ethics and determine them, and people are in charge of their personal morality, you can point back to a thinker like Machiavelli. Uh, One of the important contributions that he added to the history of thought is his work, especially as we see it in The Prince, was an attempt to separate politics and morality. In other words, that morality is what you expect in your day-to-day living as a citizen, 
but that political life and its demands and the nature of the world around you argued for a fluidity in morality such that you could determine when to be moral and when to be immoral in a way that became disconnected from what we think of as personal morality. Then when you move a bit forward in time and you look at a thinker like Hobbes, there was an effort to actually think about separating law and morality such that the law was something independent, um, a subject where you could get punished for disobeying it, and morality was the kind of sentimental values that you carried with you on the street in terms of how you treat other people. So that if you combine these ideas, you'll find that there's an interest in possibly separating the person and the community or the person and the state, in, almost in a way setting them at odds with each other. And so consequently, when you participate in an organization with its own ethics as an organization, it appears as if you have a choice, you have your personality, uh, your personal morality, and you have to decide to align to the organization's ethics. This sets up a contrast that I think itself doesn't actually exist. Yeah, if we think about ethics, ethics is behavior-oriented toward a standard or the standard toward which people are expected to orient behavior. That standard depending on how we define morality, becomes morals. You know, the, the roots of these words, when we talk about morals, we're looking back at the Latin uh, mos or mori, which are these signal points. They're points of, you know, what did you say earlier, of, of help or harm to, mm -hmm. to others, right. uh, things that are recognized as, as holding value in the community. Ethics comes from the Greek ethos, which has to do with habit or practice. And so the two things are, are separate, but they're related. There's a juncture between the two. And so when we think about what it means to be ethical, it's about behavior-oriented toward a standard, whether it's your own personal standard or your organizational standard. The problem, you know, that this raises a little bit uh, is when we, when we think about orienting your behavior toward a standard and aligning your beliefs, your practices, your actions towards a point, we don't just have one, you know, you have your individual standard, you have your professional standard, your community standard, your organizational standard. How do we understand the relation of these things to one another? Or what do we do when they might happen to butt heads? Yeah, I, I think the key is the relationship between the two. As you said, they're distinct uh, concepts, but they relate to each other because really, I think the best way to see the relationship is that morality informs ethics. When we forget that link, then we start to separate them to a point where the separation becomes artificial. In other words, ethics can never avoid the question of help or harm to other humans. When you think about the medical profession, it has you know its own ethics. And so the ethics derive from the rule of what? Hippocrates, right, from so long ago. First, First do no harm. Do no harm. And so consequently, that guides the medical profession in its determination on ethics, so it, it respects and it honors that, as you said, more or moral code. And then I, I think that what happens there, it becomes a lot easier for somebody to realize that their personal morality is not necessarily immediately at odds with the organization's ethics. In fact, all of us have a responsibility as professionals to help our organization maintain and even increase and improve its, its situation in terms of its ethics. Okay, so, so let's talk about that in terms of the, the Air Force and our core values. Yeah, sure. Different military, different branches of the military have different core values. So we've got, of course, multiple ones. 
I wouldn't necessarily say they're competing, but in terms of integrity, service before self and excellence, how does ethics relate to understanding those concepts? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, of course, the core value is going to come from the field of ethics. And so there's an immediate connection. But I think we need to go deeper than that. I like to begin with an examination of the word integrity. Uh, we know the standard modern definition, of course. Integrity is what you do when nobody's looking and how you behave. And I think actually there's a much deeper sense of integrity that helps us to respond to your question, which is that integrity much more so is about the parts of your personality and your behavior and your decisions and your thinking being in a kind of internal harmony and that the parts uh, cooperate together. And so consequently, when you're analyzing what's the right thing to do, you're drawing on your balance, your inner integrity that allows you to continue to fulfill your personal obligations and also your professional and so that they're not in conflict. It's going to be difficult. I mean, difficulty is always a part of the equation in any profession. But impossible? Uh, I think not. I think it's a challenge, and I think that by doing the best job we can, we improve our organization and its ethical health uh, in the process. I mean, after all, no organization is perfect. So let's, let's frame it this way. Mm. When you can break a rule for your own benefit, why shouldn't you? I think because at the end of the day, you're going to live with yourself. Eventually, you're going to get the gold watch, right? I think that by failing to understand that and realizing that there will be difficulty in aligning how you behave with your organization, you're just putting off the hard decision. Some people, I think, are suffering right now because we don't talk about this subject enough, I think, in an intelligent and an expansive way. And I'll have to say that I think PTSD issues and our, our repeated difficulty in properly addressing PTSD will stem partly probably from this lack of deeper understanding in terms of the, the intimate relationship between how someone behaves morally, personally, and the organization and its ethical health. So what do, what do people strive for in place of their own progress and success and achievement? What, what standard or what end do we direct them to in that case? Or are we just, are we telling our listeners, taking care of yourself, self-care is, is, is wrong. And you need to deny yourself and live a self-denying, suffering, monkish lifestyle and find, and, and find your completion and your purpose in that. Mm -hmm. what, are, what are we telling people? Yeah, well, I think the first thing about that message is it's extremely unattractive. And frankly, nobody buys it. And yet we don't completely deny it because we know that the reverse is also not true. So we've clearly got an issue here where we have a failure to understand at the conceptual level. And I think the call of, of leading is, is hurting as a result. The idea of utter self-denial is just not consistent with day-to-day -day life. You know, Aristotle would be quick, I think, if you were to join us here to point out that when you have a conversation and it doesn't even remotely resemble common sense, you've probably got an intellectual problem. And so the idea here is how does one behave in a way that's consistent with his or her own health and also serves the community? And I think that's where when you turn to a concept with, frankly, more ancient roots than, let's say, the fields of psychology or leadership studies, you arrive at a concept like the common good. There are many varieties of and ways to tackle that concept, but I think the idea there, as opposed to thinkers like Machiavelli or Hobbes that we talked about, the common good essentially is grounded in the idea that you can elevate the person and the community as a harmony. 
in, indeed with integrity, and that one does not have to be set uh, at odds with the other, that one never gains really at the expense of the other. Why? Because the common good concept also has a coherent message about self-sacrifice, that nobody should force you to suffer and serve the community, but that willingly you're encouraged in the condition of freedom that you can give yourself, even your life, for the sake of that community. And I think key question leads us to this place. You know, there's an argument in philosophy about whether you're born sort of, you come into the world as this isolated being with no inherent understanding of who you are and you get to sort of make it up as you go. Uh, there's another approach to that, that issue, which is the idea that you're born into certain relationships and obligations, that that's a part of the condition of being human. And I think that examining just that question will be a lot more fruitful in helping people to see that their personal morality and their organization's ethics don't have to be constantly at odds, that there's a way to harmonize them so that you can be a fruitful, uh, productive, and successful professional. And so in our professional leadership, there is a harmonization between, in most cases, between the organizational ethic and our personal ethic, the common good, and our happiness. Yeah, one would hope. And I think the, the, the record that we see out there of unethical behavior uh, comes from the failure to understand that possibility of harmony. I think the list is growing, and so the time seems especially ripe to think a bit more expansively, get to some deeper questions, and do a better job on this. Yeah, the, the Greeks used a, a word for this happiness, eudaimonia, that, that translates best perhaps as blessed. And of course, in our culture, you know, if we pulled up Twitter, you can do a search for hashtag blessed and find all sorts of things that mainly have to do with coffee. And uh, so, so what is the, the sort of, when, when we talk about a, a blessedness or a happiness as a target for ethical living, what do we mean and how does it relate to the community? How does it relate to the organization or the profession we are in? Yeah, as I just uh, took a sip of my own coffee, Paul, let me, uh, let me get, get back to you on that. So I think the idea here is the perception that the Greeks shared and that has persisted in the literature down to today, uh, although, of course, hotly contested, that human desire is not inherently and 100% selfish that we desire the good and that we seek the good uh, in our human activity, in our human lives. And so the idea here is that by, as Socrates would have said, not just living, but living well, by which he meant living rightly, um, that we can arrive at that place of harmony so that even when we are in the midst of suffering and things aren't going well and the world seems like an extremely difficult or hazardous place, we can rely on that sense that we have uh, something of uh, Victor Frankl or someone else would have uh, pointed us to, that that inner harmony, that sense that we know that we're living in a way that respects uh, ends, it respects other people, and that we're doing our best, um, is a kind of blessedness or a sense of uh, calm in the face of danger, in the face of threat, uh, and frankly, in the face of moral hazard. Uh, I think moral hazard, where our course will open up that conversation, is a critical place that we need to go, especially when we're considering... 2019, 2020, and a little bit beyond. Great, Dan. And then as we wrap up this podcast, I just have one more question for you. For those who are listening, do they need to understand, you know, do, do they have to be conversed in an ancient philosophy and able, you know, be able to talk about Aristotle and Socrates? I mean, if, if they're at the Socrates level, 
can they still use the common good and think about ethics and apply that in their leadership? Yeah, you, you absolutely do not <clears throat> need to have a huge background in the ancient writing and philosophy on the subject. And, and here's really, I think, why, is that those writers and those thinkers were discussing at the deepest level that they could about what it means to be human. And so consequently, you can have that conversation with a three-year-old and get somewhere uh, who arguably is not going to be conversant in, you know, let's say uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics or Plato's Symposium. And so uh, why? Because the, the thinkers there were trying to reach out again at human nature itself, talking about the condition which best supported a, a purposeful uh, but a noble human life. Not a perfect life, but a life where a kind of perfection was aimed at with the full knowledge that humans are imperfect creatures, and yet we're moral creatures. So we have a duty and a calling to try our best to not be just innately selfish uh, and self-serving and self-seeking, but to aim at what we called earlier the common good. And so that kind of conversation you can have with anyone, anywhere, according to the view that those thinkers had. That's why you don't need to read them to actually live out and consider their ideas. Yeah, when we think about this, I mean, we tend in talking about ethics to go back to these great thinkers. And if we open up the pages of their books, it becomes almost, you know, it can be almost inscrutable language. Uh, well, especially if we read the original. But the truth is, these are these are fairly simple ideas. And when we make the excuse of deep intellectualism required to think or live ethically, we can use that as a crutch to excuse ourselves from making decisions that are obviously right when we're in the moment. Uh, the truth is that what, what these thinkers have all been trying to get at for the most part are things that most of us understand fairly intuitively, but sometimes choose not to do because we think that something else might work better for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the, the ultimate conclusion of Voltaire's Candide is should tend my own garden. It's, you know, it's not that I should live a life of philosophy. It's that the life of philosophy ultimately leads around to a simple life. Mm-hmm. And, and yet a beautiful one. Yeah. All right. Well, this wraps up our second podcast uh, for uh, the leadership course. Uh, you'll catch the third one here in a few days. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thanks.